This episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. For a free 14-day trial and for a limited time 20% off an annual membership, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably science. everyone welcome to probably science i'm matt kershon i'm andy wood i'm gonna just jump straight into the guest here because I, I get someone I've, I've wanted to get for a long time we, we do a podcast that is in the comedy and science world and i'd say arguably the biggest comic who lives in both those camps and also lives in london and previously lived in ireland and is joining us via the internet it's dara o'brien hey dara how are you? I was going to say good morning because for, for you it is. Um, it is. But yeah, uh, the uh, yeah. Look, it's an absolute pleasure to finally get it. We've spoken about this in the past, um, and why should do this? And now I'm here, so you can totally find out that I've been bluffing all these years by just you know <laughs> scratching I, really at the surface uh, and quickly discovering the base metal beneath the, uh, <laughs> what I do. I, I I'm fairly sure, like. We we should go into your background, but I'm I'm still fairly sure that you are, you both are and were better at science and math than I was. Oh, see, the, the joy of it is that, that I know exactly where you're coming from that because math does create that kind of tendency to very directly league table people. Uh, and <laughs> you're very aware of it. And even when you go in through maths, I, I only did up to the, the uh, primary degree. The um, But you are aware of a almost feudal triangle of winnowing going on as yes. year by year, which you've noticed anyway from school and from streaming and from in Ireland, there's a thing called honours maths, which is in the leaving certain that uh, takes a chunk of them out. And so basically, yeah, yeah, maths is the kind of thing that, because of the, it's very difficult to distinguish between very quite able pupils, it, they, it gets stretched out exponentially in order to make it more difficult. Uh, and who could yeah, be the everyone final just sort of parts? hits a level that they yeah, and they certainly I remember it, it, oh that's me. There was a weird now. moment at the very start of, of when you go to university to do maths is you're in a room with people all of whom have been the best in their class at maths, and by the end of the year some people are not getting first <laughs> like it's like it's a very <laughs> it's a very strange thing because I remember because I, I remember the first time I did a, a university exam first year end of first year and it was not like every exam I'd done for the last 14 years in maths it was suddenly a level up and it absolutely totally threw me um, yes and yeah I hadn't developed a kind of any kind of street fighting I'm going to dig out this exam I was like why is this not yielding why is that <laughs> yielding to my thing? oh my god this is oh god and I had a somewhat something of a breakdown and then recovered for the next three papers they're all fine because I, I, I it just recalibrated me massively uh, and I was grand after that but it was a definite feeling of whoa what's yep. going on here why is this, this just like having a conversation in my language absolutely this was so straightforward and I would go no. And I'd learned to not say how well or badly exams are gone because in maths, you, when you're good at maths in a, in a mixed class of stuff, you shut up about it um, because <laughs> you don't do it. And then I was almost delighting to be able to go, no, that, I found that incredibly tough. Did, did everyone else find that incredibly tough? Please <laughs> tell me you all found that incredibly tough. But it was, it was, and it was just that constant streaming of, look, ultimately the people who are going to do this are, are going to be the ones who really, really can swim at this level. <laughs> so we're going to get to this faster. So yeah, I, I get what you mean. I don't know, Im- impossible to tell. Um, but I choose always to presume that I would have been. The, uh, even though I did, I got very heavily distracted in university uh, and just about got away with it. Um, very, <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, I, I also got 
I think I got more distracted at university and then didn't get away with it and then managed to re-get away with it. Uh, well, but, look, it's like, I, I can be quite specific. Like, what did you do? Did You, you finished it, didn't you? Did I you finish did finish, it? but I should have been kicked out in the second year and I managed to sort of talk my way out of being chucked out in the second year and managed to sort of ended yeah. up, like ended up getting a degree at the end, but I, I shouldn't have done I possibly should have been kicked out in the second year and then I had a talk with a guy who teaching me fluid dynamics who said well good that you got it out of your system this year <laughs> and then <laughs> it probably changed nothing behaviour wise and then the, at the end of the the, the final it was a three year degree it, that I uh, I did my finals a second time because there was a uh, professor there who basically said I got a third class honours and the professor said look you weren't doing all this stuff you could see me running elections in the university all this kind of stuff like and, and <laughs> doing big debates and he said why don't we just say that you're under enormous uh, stress and and it'll go through the systems of the of the college and, you, and you'll be allowed to do it all again uh, and so I went back and did it a second time and actually that gave me a, a, a once a four month clear block where I actually did properly learn some stuff yeah. uh, and if I hadn't done that I think I would be I'd have, I may have ended up in comedy anyway that probably would have happened but I certainly wouldn't have had any sympathetic sense towards higher education or science and I wouldn't have I, I, I think it would have burnt me um, you know I'm not saying that that's a reason to let people go back and do it but it probably is that I then any of the passion I continued to have for it was because I actually did get a chance to do it again properly and it wasn't I wasn't punished for being, you know, extracurricular, they kind of went, look, just do it again, but this time could you actually do it? Uh, and <laughs> so, uh, so, so any, any of the stuff that you see me doing science is because I actually were given a chance to do that again and so I retained some love for it. And I also had a moment where I got relativity for about 10 minutes in a garden. I got <laughs> relativity. Uh, and because I used to study at night and then I'd start, step outside at three in the morning and just look up uh, at the sky or just take a breather. And I remember distinctly thing where I went, oh yeah, he took it from that. He, he flipped the paradigm. I get it. I totally get it. And it's like this moment of yes. And honestly, that, one of those in your life um, that you can always point at. You could show me the equations now and it'd be, it'd be a, uh, it would be Sanskrit to me, probably. But uh, <laughs> in that moment, all the I's and J's lined up like in a movie where, you know, it's all cloudy. <laughs> Spinning and around it your all, head. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you, because you presume you never lose the idea in maths that, that somehow you should be walking around like the Terminator seeing graphs and things and, and you should <laughs> see numbers like it, and the, and the, and the, 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 uh, not uh, potential, the, um, pro, uh, properties of numbers should just become apparent to you because you should go, oh, well, look, that's obviously, look, that is a perfect number. That, that should just be happening all around you in your vision at the, at the time. You should look at a problem and see what the graph is. But of course it doesn't. It's, you know, it's, it's, you just, somebody's just got to work this stuff out, like, and, and divine the, the, the meaning later. But it's an appealing image that you would just become so fluent in the language that it would become just totally instinctual. Um, and did you do that exam? Of, was it a full year later? Did I do the exam? For, uh, yeah, I did. But I, I, um, what, did the, the finals? Yeah, I did them again a year, a year later. Yeah. So, and, and the extracurricular stuff you were doing. Oh, by the way, I, I'll see if I can track it down because, uh, I think it was Terence Tao who's now considered one of the best, if not the best, pure mathematician in the world. Uh, but he had a really nice essay he wrote on his website about, like, the progression of becoming a good mathematician, where you sort of see everything in a sort of heuristic, hand wavy way at first. Yeah. And then, and then you learn rigor, and then, and then you relearn how to see everything in a hand wavy way. 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, it was it was always said of Hawking. Hawking was supposed to be incredibly visual, uh, right. and or, or became trained to become incredibly visual because obviously, because of his condition, he couldn't be writing down the I's and J's. And other people wrote down the I's and J's, and he had to develop a language for it. But he became quite uh, intuitive. He wasn't at the start. He was quite the banging out and here's a tiny with a tiny uh, print and then other people had to fill in those things because he would just float around on space-time diagrams uh, so he, he could do it just in that intuitive way purely visually but uh, I would never got <laughs> never got close to that at that point of it the yeah uh, um but uh, no, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's a weird thing because because you're never sure if you should be that. There is a, a biologist, famous biologist, who said that his mental image of a dog is the word dog, just D-O-G. If you ask him to think <laughs> of a dog, he just thinks of the word dog. Uh, I don't know who that is. So I don't think it necessarily is. And, and I'm not sure if it, if it particularly helps or it gives you a false sense of uh, of understanding this. But the, uh, you know, and how much, how much is just because people are, are better at calculating? Really, we've, really. We've, talk, we've also talked on the show before, and I don't know how this correlates with scientists and mathematicians but we've talked a bit about aphantasia um the first brandy posey episode we talked about that a lot because she has it and also our mutual friend kerry marks has aphantasia where you just don't have any mental you don't have mental images you don't have so it really is like if if you if i say dog to you you are probably imagining a picture of a dog or an image or a sort of almost a video of a dog playing in your head but for Carey, it would just be sort of the word dog and properties of dogs. Yes. Okay. Um, but is this, is this like one of these things slightly like dyslexia in the sense of, yes, obviously it seems like a, it's a difficult thing, but limiting, but the different directions of thought would be, would make you quite original in some ways. Is this, is, is aphantasia, I, is it, can it be useful? I mean, I, I suspect so. Because Carey, before he was a comedian, he's a very good comedian now, he was a magician and also... I yeah. I don't have the skill set to know whether someone's a good magician or not, but I'm told he was, and I can imagine if he took the same level of care and intelligence to his magic that he did to his comedy, he was probably very, very good. And he used to devise his own tricks, which again is oh, that's a surprising thing, rarity in the magic world, where a substantial number of the performers just sort of buy their tricks from a book and or from a shop. But um, to have the brain to be able to devise your own illusions and effects and card tricks and so on, there must be a level of imagination going on that is greater than the average person i wonder how that does tally with not having an in- internal well, image the um the title the, the couple things firstly I, I know like richard wiseman um who does uh, i presume you know richard who does yes all he's the, yeah, he, yeah he's a, a i think a psychologist by trade right but he's yes. also a very keen yeah. semi-professional magician yes and he devises tricks all the times and uh, uh, and uh, and it, the, uh, an interesting side note to that is uh, i had a late night conversation with the ones about getting an encore uh, sorry getting a standing ovation and because he worked with darren brown a lot uh, and they would devise ways to basically influence the audience into standing up uh, <laughs> the, so I, what we decided what might work is, and it's very difficult to do this visually, as you bow, you bow, but you bow with your hands out. Um, and so then when you rise up, your hands rise up as well. And this <laughs> should hopefully get the audience. So it combines them to rise. Yes. And they go, oh, well, we better, we better get up. Like whatever. You basically whoosh them up uh, with your hands as a suggestion. <laughs> they, uh, but I also know an actor who stands and as he bows, his hands are down and he literally motions the audience to stand <laughs> with his hands. So, you know. The level of, of influence can be more or less subconscious uh, in, in these things. The other the, one I heard for cheating a standing ovation is just 
if you just sort of stick around on stage for long enough, then yeah. people start to naturally get up to leave, and the other people who are still <laughs> applauding just sort of confuse uh. that with standing up to applaud. There was a uh, there's a gig a famous uh, big show called Live at the Apollo, which is in the Apollo Theatre in Hammersmith in London, uh, and is a big three thousand seater. And as the MC, um, you wrap the whole thing and we go, "Thank you very much, good night." It's a it's a kind of showcase, like a, a Comedy Central showcase uh, for stand up here. The uh, and so I was MCing it once, and I said, "Thank you very much, good night." And then what you do is you have to turn around and walk back while a wall of bulbs is raised up and dry ice comes out, and you and you walk back to that and you turn and you wave to the audience um, and then the wall of bulbs is lowered down again that's the end of the show it's very much standard um, short of a brick wall is a standard kind of showbiz kind of backdrop right. shiny floor into. big stage show totally yeah uh, but um, the audience I have since learned to, to go out before and tell the audience not to do this because the audience at the end of the show know it's the end of the show so you ladies and gentlemen that's been our show thank you very much good night and then you they applaud you turn and as you walk all you hear is 3,000 seats go <laughs> and by the time you've walked the 40 feet because it's quite a deep stage you turn and you wave and it's just people putting on coats or having left uh, or checking their phones and you're there waving in like old show business still waving at them and they're all they've all gone no one is looking at you and it's the most heartbreaking thing and the bulbs come down and just you waving to nobody uh, and it's quite heartbreaking it's just the um, most instant come down after doing this big, big, it's a, a big gig to do to yeah. thousands of people uh, and but sorry it does tie back sorry just to loop back to what we're talking about the interesting thing is I left um, maths for many reasons and one of them I think was that I don't think I was ever sufficiently creative to do it at a proper level uh, and then instead went into the arts the, uh, because I feel that, that the actual act of creation and something like that was much more difficult to come up with something original or interesting than in just coming up with gags that it, is, I mean, the level to which you had to get to to be able to go, well, what, what now what can I create? Right, and it, there is a massive jump between, I think, even the earlier stages of postgrad mathematics. You, you were mathematical physics as well, weren't you? So you I were, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So mainly so it, was, you, it, was, it was theory, yeah. You were more the applied courses and the... Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But at either level, pure or applied, there is a, there's a big difference between undergraduate, which is still... There's a greater level of problem solving and it's less spoon fed to you, but it's still you're still learning, basically being told the information that has already been discovered by previous generations of mathematicians. And you just learn what they discovered and then you have to remember how to do it in an exam. It's still it's still not that different in theory and type from what you did when you were. 14. Yeah, in your, in your, yeah in your, when you're doing your, your whatever the exams you do, the junior cert or leading to A levels, O levels, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's an exam. You do the exam and uh, hopefully it goes then, well. Yeah. And then the le- but then the level above that, which probably comes to like halfway through postgrad when you're actually having to discover your own things, that is just, that is a very creative level. That is Yeah, absolutely. Different. Yeah, I mean, we were, our minds were slightly blown by the fact that in the math physics department, uh, when you did the exams, there was no rubric. Uh, and somebody spotted this um, by going with, looking at the previous papers and asked, there's, there's no, what, what are we supposed to do? And the guy said, you just 
gets as many out as you can and we'll have a look at and we see if, if we like how your brain works uh, we'll <laughs> reward you it was really <laughs> and that was we just come to a system we come to like the leaving service is, is the equivalent of I don't know what the equivalent is in America it's equivalent, equivalent of the A-levels and whatever the end of um, the school when you're about 18 um, I'm not sure what the equivalent is actually I've never known SATs there's yeah, there's kind of no, there's no like standardized, look, well, the SAT is a standardized test, or it stands for scholastic, but um, besides that, there isn't any sort of agreed upon yeah. equivalent of uh, A-levels, I guess, right? That's the yeah, 18-year-old that, that, thing? Yeah, that'd be the, yeah. Britain, that'd be the British one. In Ireland, there's things that leave and there really is everyone just does the exact same exam, because it's a small country, you know, so it's everyone does the exact same exam, but you're very much channeled towards this, and you're very much, you receive points for, and everyone's, everyone's in the same system. And it's quite transparent because of it, and we don't get lots of um, famous actors uh, paying for their children to be on rowing teams, fake rowing teams, because there's no real way of doing it. The, uh, so it's, uh, uh, if, and it's the benefits of being in a small country like this. You don't quite get that. There's no, there's no interviews for university. You just get into this centralised system. I didn't uh, realise there was no interviews even. None at all. None at all. So, so I meet people who still go, oh, well, I, I've heard of Trinity College. That and you're going, yeah, look, we're all in the same system, lads. They, uh, you've heard of one of them. The, uh, and it's really irritating if you went to the other one because they go well, I've never heard of that that must not be it's not like Oxford and Cambridge where you had to get it. you all and we all know the points that everyone got for everything because they're printed in the paper so the uh, it's they're very they're printed very in the paper? well not it, like well it doesn't go Dara got this but it says the, it, these are the entry requirements for medicine here for philosophy here oh, for the, oh, their, oh. yeah so it gives a number and you know that you know anyone who got into that got more than that number more than or equal to that number so there's not any and if you got in if you, you got that you're in if you didn't hard luck they, yeah, so it's quite brutal I suppose in some ways but it means there's no discretionary interviews no phone calls being made there's no, that's not how any, anyone's admitted everyone gets in everyone gets in on that system um, and so the, basically the, the, after the, the five days after the results are released in August there is a supplement in the paper that has loads of numbers in it and it's just these are the people who've qualified is your number here and you check and you go oh look I'm in university that's how uh-huh. transparent it is they, uh, so, but it does mean that you're all very focused on this so then you go and so you do past papers and it's not quite an industry I suppose it probably is now but it, it didn't feel quite an industry it was just but it was quite straightforward um, and then you go to university and, the, and the, you're in a maths department and they go do as many questions as you feel like uh, is, please <laughs> just express yourself yeah and you're kind of going no I need more guidance than that I, yeah, you don't like understand Montessori University or yeah they, uh, and uh, we'll all be under a tree and if we like you come, come and sit under our tree uh, it was all very very <laughs> loose and, and fluid and head wrecking but the uh, yeah it was uh, it was it was yeah, that kind of but they wanted to see uh, how does your brain work uh, and uh, is that does that suit what we what we're doing here so you know that that mm. whether it did or it didn't for me as I've I did a talk at my university recently and I said I entered UCD uh, with a bright academic career behind me uh, and that <laughs> sort of sadly sums it up like so, yeah so and went, but also the other thing about it was is that I then ended up later in life sitting with loads of scientists um, right. on various things right uh, and various television shows and doing gigs and stuff like that with various scientists and actually probably broadcasting a lot of science the, on the BBC but found that a degree in mathematics was useless for talking <laughs> to actual working scientists because the methodology is completely different we're, we, for, I did four years of, of blackboards and chalk and QED and now let's, let's get them uh, solve these this this very discreet um, problem and then get the result out of that like whatever there was no p-values there were no measurements uh, there was no what is the relevance of this and how can I so so when I talked to actual scientists I had nothing 
I had no training in common with them. Um, you know, we talked about the same results. But the guys who actually had to build a thing, measure it, particularly astronomy, for God's sake, you know, and the, because uh, there's lots of, I think, a show called Stargazing on the BBC, and you talk to astronomers who are meticulous in, well, we, we examined this for 50 nights in a row, and then we spotted this slightly different thing. I, I was doing cosmology. I was just, you know, oh, well, therefore, the, 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 the Ricky tensor and the, you know, this, this, this highfalutin uh, theoretical stuff that I was doing had nothing to do with actual, well, this is how we repair the telescope and <laughs> make sure it's on the right wavelength. We did none of that, um, which is kind of, kind of, there's a guy called Jim Al-Khalili, who's a very good science communicator here. And he said at one stage in his career, he was a theoretical physicist as well. Uh, he was working on the equations for a cyclotron. Uh, and the people said, by the way, would you, would you like to see the cyclotron? And he said, someday it'll be like, and they said, it's next door. <laughs> three months on displacement with a blackboard working out, you know, the, you know, the time dependent uh, equation for this. Like, yeah. And, all, and meanwhile, next door, things are whizzing around in a big circle and he's not even looked in at it. So uh, that I think it's a it, it's a common thing, but it ma- it made it slightly weird. So I was smiling and on at people as they're talking about the difficulties of, of pub- publication and finding you know results that were. And I'm going, no, you you either solved the thing, or you didn't uh, in a QED way. And what I did, so that turned out to be useless anyway as a training. I'm going to say this to my university. Yeah, because even because I mean, there, there's obviously the big difference between the the theoretical physicists and the practical ones, the ones the experimentalists. Yeah, but even with the theoretical physicists who are doing things that are a bit closer to what you were doing at university, there is just this big difference between undergrad physics and what... Oh, Like, for example, our, we have a mutual friend in Jan 11 who I know has been on yes. a couple of your shows in the UK and is our go-to question about gravity that we don't understand. Uh, but again, the stuff that she's doing on a day-to-day basis is wildly different to undergrad physics because it is so much more conceptual and problem solving and staring at like staring into space for a while and hoping some ideas come to you and also but also presuming that the maths will lead to a physical intuition which was which is amazing for us like which is just the the idea that i'm going to look at these equations i'm going to strip the system down i'm going to just look at the equations without any idea of what's actually going on here but i'm just just looking them as a mathematical system and then i'm going to extrapolate back again which is again how all this theoretical physics works is the uh basically going to find this and and realize oh well this is just a differential equation i can just solve this and then find out that that gives me a graph of a result where this is where it started and this is where it hit where this is where it fell off the cliff or whatever the uh the these things i've now i put i plug them back in again and they find that they have a, a, a significant the fact that theoretically seems to run on so much that entire particles were coming out of the air uh, for, and, and still are the uh, is funny just how much that's accelerated away and meanwhile the guys are going I, look to, I have to build what to prove this this is insane <laughs> which you all just calm down for a minute on on coming on these crazy just like well the maths tells us that you know there'll be a thing there'll be a field um, I interviewed Higgs um, once the uh, uh, just after he'd won the um Nobel or, or possibly no just before he won the Nobel but after the so when the particle the, had been discovered the so it was discovered, pretty yeah. obvious that he was about to win the Nobel yeah, Prize uh, but, but he was being very demure decades earlier 
the uh, and it was at, at a, a science festival called the Cheltenham Science Festival. And uh, somebody asked him because he was basically working in a very he was working in the wrong thing at the wrong time in many ways. Uh, what he was doing, he was looking at a thing that had sort of gone down a, what was felt like a bit of a cul-de-sac, I think, or gone into into a, into a direction on this particular problem that no one else was kind of going in. And he wrote a paper on it, and he got he, like obviously what he did was amazing, but the but the 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 particle was a tiny line at the end of it because he got sent away for the weekend they said look could you add a bit more to it and he went away for the weekend <laughs> and went walking in the Scottish Highlands or something and then the thought struck that he should add in a bit that says and obviously this field also implies you know I don't know what the, what the exact wording was but it, it wasn't there'll also be a particle but it was the field implies a, a, a manifestation or something like that some very dry way of putting it and that line just that line added on that weekend that he spotted was his Nobel Prize um, you know, and I, I there's a T-shirt that they sell in CERN which has, I think it's the, the state equation which has the energy flux and something, and it's this multi-term equation for the standard model, right? And it's got all these terms. And I sat down with them before we did the thing, and I said, look, and I took out the T-shirt and said, look, wh- what are the terms? I get that that's energy flux, and I get that that's whatever matter. And he said, yep, and he and he named and he went through the terms, and he got to the last three of them on this like zero equals thing and he said and that's my bit (laughs) 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 and that's quite lovely but again it's 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 a type of creativity it's much easier to go here's a funny story about a time i accepted to a custard pie than it is to go i shall now reform the weight of it just the responsibility of it what can i say that's new about the universe so no one else is it I found that essay. I've put it in the show notes as well in the on the cast page that Terence Tao wrote. It's worth a read. It's a very short one. I'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well for the episode. But cool. he he describes it as the three stages of mathematical education as the pre rigorous stage, where it's taught in a sort of informal, hand wavy way with fuzzy notations, and it's more he says computation theory that lasts yep. until the early undergrad years. Then the rigorous stage, which you're taught in order how to do it math properly. Uh, so that would be the sort of analysis level with like analysis, epsilons yeah, yeah. and deltas and everything. And then what he calls the post-rigorous stage, where you've grown comfortable with all the rigorous foundations and now ready to revisit and refine one's pre-rigorous intuition on the subject, but this time with the intuition solidly buttressed by rigorous theory. So that, uh, that's that's yeah, what that he describes as like the stage of being a professional mathematician, where you you have all these sort of you have all the tools you have all the sort of rigorous grounding but then you sort of have to learn how to re-see things in a hand wavy bigger picture way so you can well, so get I what's going on that, that makes perfect sense because I, I always had a theory about genius um once I be, once it became evidently clear that I I was untouched by it, uh, it became interesting <laughs> to observe it in others, right? You know, because you, you have dreams and you're fourteen, right? So I'm going to re- rebuild everything, um, well, again, which again comes from sort of being the best in your school at a thing, where so, yeah, you know, you're surrounded I, by people who it's not their subject, and it, well, I I must be. How can I not be the next Newton? Absolutely. Look at the greatness I have. Because once I walked into a classroom while the rest of the class were struggling with a problem and I said, as I put my bag down, I went, I think you'll find it's uh, dy dx equals e to the x. And they all went, oh. And I went, look at that. Surely right. I'm going to be carried out. Yeah, that happened once. Uh, and yeah. It's like finding out also like the, the best kid in your school at football can't even make the sort of fourth division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got it. Oh, it turns out it was a very small school. Uh, and so, the, uh, so it was a... Um, a but the 
a genius in what it seems to be a common theme and, and it's probably as, as obvious when you see it in art as anything else. You go to the Picasso Museum uh, and you'll see um, that by 16 he was doing classical art incredibly well. Um, and there are a number of examples of, the, of, the, of artists who, who, yeah, okay, I've learned all your rules and now I'm going to mess around. Now I can do something and now I can push it off in a different direction because I've, I have taken all the things and I've, and I've synthesized all you've done up till now and now I can do something else. And there seems to be something in Genius being a thing that you have, you've basically done everything, you've, you've caught up with everyone and now you, you can move it on. The, uh, and so that would fit in perfectly with that. Like, would you learn how to do the thing and you can't, you know, you properly put the, put the hours in and then you have the luxury of having done that, having given yourself the bedrock of actual formally learning everything, the, the, the techniques, then you go off and do something else. Does that mean genius is going to be less obvious to see because we've just accrued much more knowledge that's much more difficult to get to the, to catch up with everything? I have no idea. I'm asking and answering my own questions, but the, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, but it, it did seem to be a, a thing that, and that's interesting that it's the same in mathematics as it would be in classical art. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I say sort of almost any field that has yeah. a level of creativity where, yeah, the, the difference between sort of just doing what your teacher told you and then going a little bit further and then actually really pushing out into something completely wildly new. Yes, that must be a lovely feeling. Who knows what that's like? Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if that post-rigorous stage, if that is is maybe a good definition of, of genius, because I'm assuming that there's no guarantee you could you could work your whole life in a field and not or in mathematics and not get to that post-rigorous stage. I'm assuming it's not like well, it's a... I- I don't know. I, I say that. the sort of the beginning of that stage is I, most professional working mathematicians would have got to that point where there is a level of where, where there's at least a level of rigor, but also a level of seeing the bigger picture again and no longer doing it in that sort of, you know, being able to take a step back and seeing it from both sides, seeing it from the rigorous side, but also from the sort of hand wavy side. I th- I would imagine to an extent, but also this essay is written by someone who's considered by many to be as good as you could possibly be in the field. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. You know, he has his field medal and he has his, uh, you know, multiple various different surprising proofs and results. God, when you get, when you when you suddenly realize you're too old for the field medal, that's a, that's a one. Yes, that, that's, yeah, that's, it's that's gone a, for both of us now. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good punch, isn't it, from the mathematical <laughs> establishment that they wouldn't extend it uh, beyond that. So, Wait, is there an actual age? Yeah, 40. Oh, 40. why yeah. would there be? Why? I don't it's, know. And, you, and it's only every four years as well that it's given out. It's really quite arcane as a thing, right? The, uh, and they, but yeah, yeah, there's, a, there's an idea that. Actually, I'm not sure what the theory, theory is behind it that you can't, you shouldn't, or maybe just. Maybe it's the Perrier Award, <laughs> which is the, the comedy award, was. Uh, it's, it was a big comedy award in the Edinburgh Festival uh, and has, it still exists on, on, on some of the title. And it was a surprise when you realise that actually it only applies to new acts uh, that at some point you get right, too big a, for it. Yeah. They, have a, they have a sort of fame criterion for it. Yeah, where... exactly. Yeah. So, and, so, and the idea was, and it would make sense that like, if you, you probably don't need this now. But this this award is just there basically to to give a leg up. Now that's not what the field the field medal isn't there to shift tickets. It's not like right. we think this we think this mathematician is doing great work. You should probably pay some attention to him. <laughs> so we'll give get we'll, the TV we're companies in and see if they can develop something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they um like I mean they don't have mathematicians don't have posted his total sellout oh seven oh eight oh nine or ten <laughs> the, uh, and quotes uh, from List uh, or from Broadway Baby uh, and but. <laughs> 
It's, uh, but it is, it's not quite the same game, I, I'd imagine. The, uh, but it is, it is favor, it favors young mathematicians. I mean, the danger is, I suppose, it, it creates that, furthers that illusion that, uh, you know, you, you, you have to have your best work done by X age in mathematics. But Otherwise. That does tend to happen in, in, to a large extent, in, in pure mathematics, mathematics particularly. There are, there are definitely some exceptions, particularly in physics, where, you know, you're, you're like Sir Penrose who are still doing yeah. surprising things well into their, 70s 80s and, and beyond but i when you start doing i certainly had that when when you sort of realize and i knew it wasn't going to happen for me anyway in mathematics but you start going like oh i'm i'm now older than galois ever was and then <laughs> you go like oh then galois, now i'm older the, than newton was before he by the time he went yeah. mad and started wanting to become an alchemist rather than actually doing anything creative you could just jump straight to the alchemy. That means, right? Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm now I'm now beyond Newton's alchemy ages. Yeah, true. But it, it, like, it, yeah, it's not because it didn't work. It wasn't like he successfully became an alchemist. It wasn't. Right. It was like he gave up many years of his life attempting to transmute base metals. It's not like yeah, I'm in this happy alchemy phase where I'm just sitting at home <laughs> right, just, turning things into gold. When he became the, unbelievably rich for no no one could work out why, but he suddenly became very very rich. Yeah, <laughs> clunking around in his gold shoes. That he <laughs> wouldn't explain to anyone um there was a um just got more yeah. gravity than most people <laughs> there was a um uh whatchamacallit um the galois thing is 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 unfair though i mean as a like to have invented group theory which is a fiendishly difficult uh, part of mathematics uh to invent a group theory and then died the following day in a, in a duel at 21 i think it was in 21 I, I think it i think it might have been a few years older but it was certainly bef- it was it was 24 at most it was definitely in his early 20s yeah. So and like I knew it was like was the, the impression I always give the story may have com- compacted that that he basically he, the duel was called. So we said on his last night decided to invent group theory, um, and which was I don't know if you did. Do you do much group theory? Uh, I I definitely did at one point. It was the I most arcane. Liked- it was yeah. There was a point where it makes sense because they're like there's there's, there's four items. I, I let's say in a small group they rotate. You know, one minus one i and minus uh, minus i, for example, and they all you can you have an operation on them and they all kind of it, each you do the operation between two of them and it turns into another event and what what are the symmetries and it all makes perfect sense when it's four and then you get to infinite numbers or huge numbers and it's insane and there's a theory in it called Silo's theorem. Which only what I, what I was coming around to, which is S Y L O W. Uh, Silo's theorem and it took three lectures to write out Silo's theorem it was 24 pages because studying mathematics in university is basically transcribing a man generally a man stands at the front of the room writing on the blackboard and you write down what they write into your book and then possibly that makes sense to you. It's it's monastic. It's base. It is basically. It's like it's like being part of the oral tradition. The man talks, and you write it down. You write a new Bible uh, in front of it. Like I mean, and because you have to be doing it, engaged in some way with. And so it was. A, it was a degree spent just transcribing, and right. then maybe because if you if you, God forbid, forgot to read the notes for lecture three, uh, like after the, in the first week, then well, you're this behind. Is, this is the big problem that I had in my second year at university was when I started like writing and then doing comedy, and it it turns out, yeah, once you get behind in maths, if you don't understand, if you've missed lecture three, then lecture six is just yeah a different language. It's baffling. <laughs> By the way, I was I was wrong. You were right. He was actually he wasn't even twenty one. He he died before his twenty first birthday. Wow, God, that is that's impressive. Yeah, and yet. 
dumped as a final gift, dumped this hideous topic into the laps <laughs> of all undergraduate math students. Here, my final gift to you is a 23-page uh, theorem. Uh, and it wasn't even, it was, it was, it was yeah, it was, it was, it was, the theorem itself was just uh, that uh, the A can, can be mapped, this type of group can be mapped onto a separate group such that the, oh, what? Really? You, know, you couldn't have made love to somebody on that particular night? You couldn't have <laughs> e- eaten a great meal? You couldn't have done anything else with those final hours? except go do you know what this is really going to screw people's heads so I'm going to you know you know write down a write down the the, the symmetric mappings uh, of a group yeah. of indeterminate I, I objects quite, I never he also he invented Galois theory which I never really got onto which is another another no, branch never of abstract got it, mathematics no. but I, I quite liked group theory I, I don't know it sort of fitted my at least the early classes of it fitted my head quite well I think where because it, it's it is this sort of basically this construct this abstract construct that then happens to map onto a lot of things in the real world including a lot of um theoretical physics turns out because symmetry is anything that has various symmetries normally connects to group theory in some way or another and obviously particle physics does and cosmology oh look i'm not saying it's not useful i'm not saying it's great but but no i fully get the idea that he just sort of shat it out the night before he was going to die. <laughs> Isn't I, I only know I only know his name from the Simon Singh book about uh, Fermat or is it Fermat or Fermat? I never know how to say it. Uh, Fermat, I always say. I have Fermat. no idea. Okay. You're absolutely right. We're probably mispronouncing it all the time. The, I don't uh, know. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but isn't the story that he knew he was going to lose the duel? That's why he was furiously transcribing. He's he was bad at dueling and knew he was going to die in the morning or something. If like you're that. the kind of person, it was it was it was a political thing as well. There's a slight element of. Um, wanting to be a martyr, um, I can't. Oh, really? I can't remember a, exactly. A but... Look, if you're the kind of person who can, as you say, shit out group theory uh, in the in the in the final life for a duel, that's probably where your skills lie. You're probably <laughs> right. not thinking. I am also a wonderful gunman. <laughs> right. yeah. I was the best jeweler in my school, and it turns out <laughs> it turns out it's a small school, uh, and probably because of all the jewels. Uh, and now it turns out that I, I've got I've got the university jeweling, and it's, it's not working out for me. The um, I mean, it is incredible that the libel laws were invented just to stop that. That's uh, <laughs> like a bizarre, wow. just like right. Okay, from here on in, look, we just you just sue people. This is nonsense. We can't be we can't be bleeding people as like Game of Thrones. We're losing major characters constantly. The uh, <laughs> my favorite of all the abstracted things is a thing called functionals. Do you ever do functionals? Oh goodness, I don't know. Yeah, look, Possibly. function because functions obviously as you know functions a black box into which you feed x and you get f of x right um, and then there's operators which operate on the numbers and functionals operate on the functions and by which stage you're so meta at that point you're going what am I who what what's happened to x at all x nothing has happened to x in all this x was floating through this thing in an entirely different it's like you know, and now suddenly start thinking in a fourth dimension. It's just, oh no, come on. This is, this is getting, this is ridiculous. And there's a point you want to go, this is ridiculous. And just close the book. This is nonsense. <laughs> this is absolutely pointless. What are we doing? I once asked, um, Sean, no, was it Sean Carroll? No, um, oh man, who's the, who's the other one? Um, uh, prodigious author and explainer of theoretical physics, uh, American. Oh my God. Who? Oh, look. Um, oh, you, this is ridiculous. Brian Green. 
Okay, right. Right. Brian Green was doing a talk in Dublin and I asked him a question that we had sat at the back of the room wondering about our own lectures going, do we think, does that, does he actually think like the the world, we said, looking around, the world is an n-dimensional Riemannian manifold uh, on which there is a metric G-I-G, uh, G-I-J or um, does he think it's, that's just a really good model for the world or do, like do you, are, are we missing it are we supposed to like transubstantiation are we supposed to just at some point just believe this now that this, right, this is actually becomes, this is this is this maths or this yeah, is it just is. like a, a way and, of and, for fear like I mean because for a long time I didn't realise that, that you know apparently in, in the Catholic Church you're supposed to just believe that the water turns into wine um, even though it clearly doesn't, or that the, the wafer is a, is a is a flesh, and I remember saying to my dad, and he, like in my I think it was in my thirties, he went, "Yes, it's the body of Christ." And I said, "You're kidding! You can't actually." I just presumed you were being like a hand wavy figure about this, like the. Yeah. But he said, "No, it, it it is the body of Christ." Like whatever. Do you do the mathematics believe this? Like whatever. And I said, and I so I I tried to ask Brian Green this question, and it backfired hideously, because I said, "Do you actually believe that the universe is a thing?" And he took it as, "I'm now challenging whether this is the correct mathematical model for it." And then he gave me a long lecture about um, n-dimensional pseudo-Romanian manifolds, and that was not the question I was. <laughs> Asking. And I kept trying to bu- to dig my way out of the question because suddenly I was getting this incredibly technical. Well, the favourite theory at the moment is, but like it's very easy to take a pop and and, st- and then you go into ho- and I go, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant at all. I meant it as a light philosophical question, uh, but I put in a, a specific detail, and that's all he heard. Um, it, so I, I'm still the answer. I still don't know the answer. If some, if yeah, you're, I, if you're, I guess I'm not sure there even can be an exact answer. It's sort of well, I. I remember this is a, a sort of paired, a very pared down version of sort of the same question. Having this was when I was still at school, um, having a discussion slash argument with our math teacher about whether I is a number. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And just because to us it was like, well, it's 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 not a number the same way six is a number. And then he was sort of saying, well, show me a six, like and, <laughs> like don't. I don't mean show me six apples or six fingers. Like show, yeah, show me, me a six, yeah, a six, and then you realise like, oh, six is just sort of a placeholder to represent a concept in the same way that the square root of minus one is a pla- is a placeholder to represent a concept, even though you can't see the square root of minus one apples. But at the same time, you're totally right. Of course, it can't be enough because this is square root of minus one. All of it is wrong. All of it makes no sense at all. um, We're not saying that there were cavemen and they would go, oh, how do I represent the square root of minus one apples that I have here? uh, We know it's not a natural number. Even that, even that I find tickled me as a concept that they're natural numbers because... Ugh would pass you that amount right. of mammoth, uh, so that's so that's that's natural. The uh, but the um, but yeah, I, I look and is is point nine 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 recurring the same as one? Um, the uh, and is that the same? You know, or is right. it not the same? Yeah, the um, that sort of which that, that was another discussion where again it's sort of you, the teacher starts writing out well what's a third and you write point three, 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 and then you go okay multiply both sides of that by three and what do you get on each side of the equal sign and one side says point nine 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 yeah, and yeah, the other yeah, side yeah, says yeah. three over three which is one the, uh, because I was, weirdly I, the first time I went into the BBC to talk about that I ended up 
chatting about that um, like I had and I'm there and then I start bringing in epsilons and goes there is no epsilon that you can say that will that would be great that would be that the difference will be greater than this epsilon you know pure analysis stuff like from 20 years earlier I'm trying to the head of BBC Science who's smiling along in a kind of a okay kind of way <laughs> this is not really that useful or interesting Although, but as I'm trying to go I like science I like science I like science I'd happily do if you've got a show with a charismatic astronomer I, I'm your man I'll, I'll be there for it the, uh, the, uh, but Sophie, it clearly did sufficient of this that I was able to work with Brian Cox for 10 years doing this but me proving that 0.9999 was the same as one it's not a trick I've ever had to do in any other job interview it's not a thing <laughs> that I've ever had to at a bar show to a, to a lady the, uh, as a thing <laughs> Just, I'm about to blow your mind and <laughs> yeah wait till, wait till you hear this one hey Andy yes Matt you know we've all at one time or another tried to use our superior knowledge to impress people at bars that's true. I can't say that I haven't done that. That find, is true. Find ourselves as many wives as we can possibly muster. <laughs> and we have, believe it or not, a way to accumulate huge troves of such knowledge. Yes, we do. Because if you're listening to this podcast, you obviously love the satisfaction you get from learning new things, the feeling of accomplishment or even pride you get from that. And with a subscription to the Great Courses Plus streaming service, you can get that feeling anytime you want, not just it- when our podcast comes out. Nope. Anytime you have access to so many lectures on so many topics that you would never run out. There would never be a time that you're like, we're done. I'm going to have to wait a week slash 10 days, depending on how efficient they are for another piece of information to come out. In the interest of being rigorous, you could theoretically get through all 13,000 plus audio and video lectures and then you would be done. But you that could, would take but, but you a while. I have a theory that perhaps they would have added to them by that point and then... That's a good point. Maybe their speed of adding ex- would exceed your speed of consumption. I, I don't know if we can prove that somehow, but... I don't these... know. I, I don't think anyone's ever taken that challenge because there are far too many things. Yes. Uh, and they're cr- almost too many for a brain to, to fathom. Oh, but you know what? You might be able to get your brain to fathom more things if you listened to or watched with a course that we've been taking recently, which is called Your Best Brain. That's right. Uh, of course, all about how the brain, the most complex object in the known universe, works, how uh, its powers to make predictions about the future, form relationships with other people, adapt to rapidly changing circumstances, uh, add up numbers at speed to impress people in bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this lecture, like all the lectures, is created and presented by incredible experts. This is information you can trust, which is obviously very important and rare these days. Yeah, this, uh, this lecture is taught by uh, John Medina who is a lecturer at the University of Washington, and he has both glasses and a beard, so you know he's good. You do know he's great for that reason. Um, And those of you who've tried this know that The Great Courses Plus is great because you can watch it from your uh, laptop or streaming like set-top box or listen or watch from your phone or tablet. It's just basically any place you are where you have a device nearby, you could probably consume The Great Courses Plus through that. And we have a great deal. We yeah. we have courtesy of the good people at the Great Courses Plus a fourteen day free trial for our listeners and for an extra little bonus for a limited time our listeners can also save twenty percent off of the annual membership right now so if you go to thegreatcoursesplus dot com slash probably there is nothing to lose you can sign up have a look around see if you can manage to blow through all thirteen thousand odd lectures in the two weeks free trial 
or whether you are sufficiently convinced to sign up for longer using yeah. our extra bonus offer. That is once again thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. When we were chatting beforehand about setting up the episode, you've you've got a new obsession. Or is, I don't know if it is even a, a new obsession, but a current obsession with astrophotography. Oh, it is new um, because because um, I did as I did the show called Stargazing for ten years on the BBC myself and Prof Brian Cox, uh, and during which time you'd presume would be the ideal time for me to be taking telescopes out, but we just got spoiled by people by being able to go yes, but what does that look like uh, from a probe? <laughs> the, yeah, so oh yeah, that that looks very nice. Oh really? Would you like to see what it looks like when you're actually sitting on Jupiter? Um, so there was, so this, it was your telescope that you got from Argos. Well, I'm going to show you the one instead that we launched at a cost of $300 million. Yes, and- absolutely. Is it at a Lagrange point? It is not <laughs> at a Lagrange point. Uh, and so here's, here's the image from space. Uh, and so we just got spoiled with this kind of stuff. So when the, the lockdown occurred, I and it was particularly because the lockdown occurred in London at a really clear, warm time this time last year. It's been a terrible April this year, but it was a glorious April. And I went, you know what? I've actually, I'm doing nothing else. I'm sitting in the garden anyway. Let's uh, get a t- proper telescope so I invested in a proper telescope and very quickly you realise look it's very nice and it's lovely to look at the stuff but the uh, it's, not, it's nicer if you just screw a, a camera onto it and, and let's get a shot of stuff and then that starts a slope an insane slope of marginal gains of well if I get a slightly different um, tube to attach onto this tube and then if I get something that you know and then of course I can get a filter that'll filter out some parts of the light and then it'll be slightly better and then I'll, and then you start well I'll do lots of photographs and then I can stack them hello all this new software and then after I've learned how to stack them then I can process them hello yet more software so you end up doing most of the stuff nothing to do so actually it goes from a hobby where you are standing around with your telescope for two hours just looking up at things and going ooh look at that to you spend an hour and a half setting the thing up to be exactly right to move <laughs> in tandem with the air you never look to the eyepiece at all you put a camera on it it looks at one thing you go back indoors for three hours <laughs> You come back out again, you take it all apart, and then you spend eight hours the following day just slightly moving sliders in Photoshop to, you know, to emphasize the red a little bit more. No, wait, no, I'm bringing up the red too much. The noise is coming up. No, I better bring that back down again. Uh, And looking at uh, curves and histograms to create an image of the the images that you see the ones that are very common like you know if, if you google and and uh, all of this by the way occurring under leaden skies where the only stars you see particularly in london london is in where it's constellations only it is literally just right major london has stars. to be among the sort of top five certainly there's 10 light looted places there's in the a world. scale do you know what the scale is i do not know the scale is called the bortle scale uh, I have I've got to look at who Bortle is uh, because he's not been blessed. But Bortle, um, it is a nine point Bortle scale, and London is eight of the nine. And occasionally they will read out. Um, you can go to a website and you can see what the different scales are by what you can see. And then you start if you live in Bortle eight, 
you stop reading the lower numbers because it will make you cry because it is by Mortal 3 you can see the Milky Way in all of its many colours by Mortal 2 you can see beyond the Milky Way into other planets Mortal 1 is the face of God you can literally see in Mortal 1 you can see your grandparents and old pets playing in heaven that's how no don't tell me this but you live in Mortal 8 where you can see maybe Orion maybe you can see like the just about make out the moon yeah it's like (laughs) it's a fuzzy haze over there right the uh so it is it's it's taunting the uh the the thing but the portal scale sort of defines whatever actually really it doesn't apply that when you do deep freeze when you and you deep and you actually stick a camera on long exposure that sidesteps a lot of that but it means that you know you don't you know yourself you 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 walk out in london you don't you don't look up and see the milky way you don't look up and see the uh, fabulous but you see there are 40 stars on view so you know roughly where to point things but the uh but the only thing is it is just this little miracle of you leave the thing open and photons arrive and photons arrive in the right shape and over time over two and a half hours over an hour or 30 minutes or whatever it becomes a galaxy it becomes a recognisable image you spiral arms of galaxies and there's only I think there's, only, there's a short enough cast list of things you'll see from a suburban garden the, uh, but it's still quite compelling because then you go back and do the same one again to get a slightly better image of it, like the right, uh, and which, which again is why there's more processing. That makes sense. So there's no the reason why there's no point, almost no point looking through the eyepiece is you these things only become apparent over absolutely really your, your eye can't accumulate um, light in the same way. Certainly can't it can't uh, accumulate an image, so you will see a fuzz fuzziness. And actually you get weirdly quite good at recognising what fuzziness is worth pointing the camera at when you're sourcing things because it's not an exact... These things are supposed to track to exactly the right way. Um, and actually, it just looks like a lot of dots. If you're slightly off, you could be a million miles off, to be honest. But the, uh, so you end up doing these kind of swoops around and eventually you'll see a thing that looks slightly fuzzier than just a point of light. And you'll go, oh, look at that. Let's look at that for an hour. And suddenly it's a full galaxy. The, uh, so it's a, uh, uh, but your eye can't see it. And that is the, probably the great thing that people are disappointed by because they go, we'll buy a telescope, presuming that you'll look into it and you'll see the cocoon nebula or whatever, uh, or the crab or something like that. And you don't see that at all. Right. You know, it really, the times that I've been somewhere where you really are away from cities, like maybe going skiing and you're you're up in one of the higher ski resorts away yes. from the town yeah, yep. and it's nighttime and you're above the clouds and or just like Andy's in the desert now but I'd imagine like even where you are you still probably get a lot of yeah I'm LA looking at light. the Wikipedia entry for the Bortle scale and it looks like I'm probably a three or four so oh, not not even I mean just based on the fact oh, that like the, the clarity of of milk the Milky Way um, right. which is still very good but the time there's been times that I've been somewhere that is probably pushing maybe I don't know if I've ever been one but certainly pushing two yeah. where you just look up and you realise like oh that's why that's why people used to write poems about the stars <laughs> yes. and had all these yeah. ideas and you know, if you grew up in London which I did or you know London suburbs but you just oh the stars are things that come out at night and they're these little specks and it looks cool but then you you go into the middle of nowhere and it's just this sort of blanket of magic that appears yeah. after dusk we recorded a series of um uh, stargazing uh, it was the last live special we did was in Australia and it was in a place called Siding Springs which is this mountain 
if you go from Sydney and drive straight inland for about an hour, an hour and a half, you get to a point where it's mountains and then the mountain stops and becomes a desert and becomes that, that to the, to the, to the other side of the, uh, of the country. But on the top of those mountains, they stuck this incredible uh, observatory. Um, and that was because it's, it's a dark spot. So like, so they, so basically, People operate entirely. There's blackout blinds on every building. There's no stray light anywhere. Uh, it's incredible how dark they keep it. Um, but I got a camera and, and set up there because it is insane. You just point the camera at the sky. And, and even an idiot like I was, particularly at the time, who could hardly focus and didn't know how long to leave the thing on for, you know, uh, you just get these ludicrous skyscapes. Just and it's and we we when we, even when we did the show we had it worked out that the show when the show started because it was on us we we'd we'd have it on BBC at eight o'clock nine o'clock in the evening which directly correlated to I think seven in the morning or six in the six in the morning in in there in Australia so when the show started it was in darkness and you could see the Milky Way behind us and when the sh- and when the show ended the sun had come up and you could see the desert stretching out behind us it just it was incredible as an effect that's amazing. The, uh, but there was a guy there, an, an English guy whose name I, I've forgotten now, uh, who was the father of astrophotography. Um, and basically, this, this guy in the 60s, he was, he was the first one who said, look, you've got to break it down into R, G and B, and then you do different things and you put them together, you get a luminous thing and you, this is how you should... Think. And, then, and basically, all of the images... Um, he, where that you've seen the iconic type Hubble type images, he was the one who fathered all that entire science. Right? The uh, I did not know this while I had a conversation with him while I'm holding a camera and I think I said I'm going to go do a photograph and the guy said, <laughs> "Okay, well let me give you some advice." I went, "All right, old man, what have you to teach me?" <laughs> uh, and not knowing who this guy was, um, and he gave me two great pieces of advice. One of which was. Bring a rucksack with a little beers because uh, underneath your tripod there'll be a little hook. And I said, "Oh yeah, there is." Yeah, I said, "Yeah, that tripod is. Hang the bag off that. It'll steady it, and then that'll take away all the shakes and it'll work much better. And then you just drink the beers. And <laughs> that's that's an excellent piece of technical advice. advice. And then the other thing he said, the greatest technical challenge that he faced, this man who invented astrophotography, so he's clearly being up serious, but he's great because he used to do star trails, and star trails are where you take a series of long exposures. Uh, so that you get you get you catch the rotations of stars around um, there the southern uh, pole the uh, and here obviously you're in Polaris the uh, and you catch these beautiful sweeps of them and he would do this what well, there's a poster for sale in, in the gift shop of this place which is an 11 hour star trail so basically they go all the entire way around and it's, it's just this amazing it's a sort of like it looks a bit like going into hyperspace type thing right. but shot in a real thing and he said the greatest technical challenge and I'm like mm-hmm, nodding along going oh wow teach me oh, Oracle he said the greatest technical challenge is I'd set the thing up I'd have the exposure starting and then i go to bed i collect the camera in the morning uh, and then in the middle of the night a kangaroo would come along be confused uh-huh. by this thing and punch it uh, and so <laughs> So he would come out and all of his stuff would be on the ground because an angry kangaroo had, had had a face off with his camera, uh, tripod equipment, and had taken it down. So, uh, so that is the perfect piece of of, uh, of technical advice on this one. Just watch out for kangaroos. That's uh, something you've taken on board for your London observatory. Uh, it's been very. You, there is a surprising amount of of wildlife even in London. Uh, there is a, a lot of foxes, which if you remember, foxes. Um, have make a very distinct noise. I'm not sure you get many foxes in LA. Um, no, we have we have coyotes instead, which is the same okay. same kind of deal where they will attack small animals and go through your bins. Well, does a coyote, as it's making its rounds, um, make a noise like a woman being murdered in the garden next to you? <laughs> 
because oh. that's that's what foxes do uh, and then they and then you go oh my god what was that and then the the next garden on another mo- mo- woman gets murdered and it's like there's this hideous shriek and the hideous shriek just keeps going garden after garden so you go oh no it's not actually you know you're very aware because you're in the darkness oh no but it's oh no it's not that like or an owl who uh, there is an owl who lives near us and uh, the parakeets that got released into West London because of um, the filming of African Queen in Twickenham Studios back in the why? yes apparently that's why so, so they brought them over. There were stories that were supposed to be King Henry VIII in, in Hampton. They, he had a private aviary or whatever, but apparently that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't quite add up uh, in terms of the date. So they had them over for African Queen and they had them in Twickenham Studios in African Queen and a number of them escaped and bred and now there is 8,000 pairs of parakeets all across West I London. I never knew that because I knew that there's this weird population of tropical birds floating around various parts of London. Yeah, and really easy to see. I mean, like you're, they're, they're, they're all like we look at our garden regularly and see parakeets. There are feral parrots at Echo Park. Have you seen those before, Matt? No, I haven't. Yeah, I was walking through Echo Park like, last month and uh, walked by this tree, and suddenly a few dozen birds were scared off and flew off. And I said, "Are those green?" And my friend's like, "Yeah, those are the parrots." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at an article right now about these feral parrots that uh, I forgot if they came from. Let's see if they came from. Were they just pets? Oh no, I'm sorry. There was um, a Bush Gardens theme park back there oh, right. in Van Nuys in the 60s and 70s when it shut down uh, it's believed some were set free and um, just became the east side parrots there's a bunch of things like that it's like the um, the bison on Catalina Island oh right yeah get cool buffalo but aren't and I, I now know that because we went on a little nature tour of Catalina and every time we said buffalo the guy who was taking the tour did that thing where he just very intentionally corrected you but without ever actually correcting you where he was uh, like, yes yes the the bison <laughs> um, oh right okay okay fine yeah um oh, sorry. i was like i was expecting you much more passive aggressive uh i think you'll find there are a bison yeah no, he uh, never did of... that he always just went like so how you know for some so how many uh, buffalo are on this island he went, yeah so the number of bison that are on the island uh, is uh yeah i guess that's, um, nice. that's yeah but catalina's weird anyway because it has a bunch of animals that you see on the mainland, but they're all about a third smaller because it's had, um, I can't remember the name of the process, but sort of reverse also evolutionary shrinking because of scarce resources. Scarce resources, yeah. So presumably, yeah, so they can't, they can't have large offspring. And, yes. Oh, so wow, sort of natural nice. selections worked in the opposite way. So they have, they have these foxes that are smaller than their mainland foxes and they have bison that are smaller than you'd expect. But they, so could you keep this process going and and like create tinier and tinier versions of you, these animals? Yeah, I think if you just keep shrinking the area that they're allowed to be in, if you just sort of close off the island more and more, then you end up with these bonsai, <laughs> these little miniature horse-sized bison. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how. I mean, this is, ter- this is presumably a terrible existence for them, but, I, but I'm I'm intrigued to see this in operation. Uh, who who doesn't want a house? Small can you go? Who, yeah. who doesn't want a house bison? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, it'd be amazing. We have to keep because if we if we let him out of this room, he'll immediately he'll immediately become a huge full size bison. As long as we keep him within this boxed off area, he stays small. But the moment he realizes there's more than this, uh, he he instantly grows to full bison size. <laughs> So if you accidentally, if you go into the bison room, but you've somebody's left the telly on and, and he sees a picture of fields and you walk in and suddenly <laughs> full-size <laughs> bison sitting there. Who left the TV on your dick? Idiot! Just you put on the nature Just out of his t-shirt like the Hulk. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like I didn't know it was a screensaver that came out. Like it was one of these. It was one of these kind of high def demonstrations <laughs> modes that it would the telly just clicked into, and suddenly it's like the wild open plains and the bison, and now there's a huge bison just so staring. It's like a leg crashes through the wall, and then another yeah. leg through the opposite wall, and then a head comes out through the chimney. <laughs> oh, who told him about the plains? Um, <laughs> So that, yeah, that'd be great to see that in action. But this, the, the bison, all the bison that are on Catalina Island came from uh, an irresponsible film shoot <gasps> about almost a century ago. In the, it was during the early sort of silent film days of Hollywood where someone was shooting a Western. And Catalina gets used for a lot of film shoots anyway. It's just sort of right. good terrain and it's, uh, it's nice weather and it has a lot of different types of, you know, you've got sort of, in a very small amount of space, you've got a beach and you've got like a, something that looks like a desert and something that looks like the plains and a mountain. Um, but yeah, they just shipped. They just put a whole load of bison on the on a boat, took it over to Catalina, filmed, filled their, their heads film, with dreams. Just, yeah, <laughs> told them, told them this is the start of a big career in Hollywood. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then chewed them up and spat them out. Oh man, that just, is a. Yeah, knowing that there'll be another load of bison on the next bus there's, coming. There's from always them. new bison. There's always new bison <laughs> that with who's head of filled with dreams again, like whatever. So they were contract player bison. Um, exactly. At, at, oh, that's tough. That's tough. It's a tough existence. You know. We just you know they saw the poster with the bison on the front, and then they find out that they're just going to be extras. <laughs> oh, it's a tough man, and they're now just telling stories. Man, yeah, I was in that yeah. game. That was the toughest game in the world. <laughs> Bitter old chain smoking bison. Just yeah, world weary. Yeah. 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 That's um, what brought us all here. But yeah, they obviously, obviously, you're gonna. It would be twice the expense to ship all the bison back again after the shoot. Yes. Done. So they just left them there. Now, now there's now there's bison on the island. <laughs> well, I'll make a note. I mean, I, I have to Google where Kathleen is, by the way, because I'm not t- totally sure it's, where it's to place just that. Off, I mean, it's just sort of if you're uh, around. I think you take the boat from just south of Venice, but it's um, but it's just off the west coast of. Okay. Of the US, just so you you go to LA and then you get on a boat and it's about an hour's boat ride just out there. You can see it from the from the shore of the mainland. Did was there a version of it in any of the uh, Grand Theft Auto games? Um, the that you could. Was, I don't I doubt it because there's there's only one um, town on the island, and I think it's very difficult to even get a permit to be allowed to have a car there. Yeah, you, everyone goes around on these little golf carts. That was not in the, that's not fitting with the game at all. To be honest, that's that, that G- GTGC. Yeah, Grand Theft Golf yeah. Cart was based there. <laughs> yeah. It's a much slower paced game. It's, it's really popular in the retirement communities in Florida. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 There is um. It does feature in Arrested Development. Oh yeah. There's oh, a, does it? Okay. Yeah. There's the the family reunion on a Catalina. And of course, Step Brothers, the Catalina wine fucking Catalina wine, wine mixer. Oh, the Catalina wine mixer. Okay, fine. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, look, look. To, to your credit, this is ridiculous that you're you're coaching me in this. Um, but <laughs> but it should be said that I'm doing this in London as part of a general initiative to uh, do a few podcasts, made in podcasts in places as far away as possible and as many different places as possible over the course of a few days, just as a kind of a small podcast world tour. Um, and I'm thrilled to be on your coast uh, with this, or in the desert uh, at the same right. time. Right, yes. so, yeah, because yeah, I go from this to in a in East Hollywood and Joshua Tree. 
Fabulous. Okay, cool. That's great. Uh, the uh, uh, because it is. Um, I put a, a call out on, on Twitter, and so the one after this is uh, an Icelandic photographer who's going to tell me about um, lava flows, uh, and then I'm doing one in Melbourne, both tomorrow. So I'm just bobbing around from place to place. As if I'm visiting them, but I'm not. I'm literally. I'm just in my room, which is which is has been the greatest disappointment of this entire. Um, <laughs> I've done gigs on Zoom, uh, and I found them enjoyable. And the only bit that uh, you know, I've got over the oh, this is this this is how comedy should work. It's still fun to do, except that when it ends, it ends brutally. Um, yes. <laughs> it, 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 no one warned you the bit that you go what a great gig thank you very much and you just press leave and then you're back in your own house you're instantly back in your own home you're, you're staring normally at the tab of your browser that says launch zoom yeah mm-hmm. um, and, and, the, and it has a zoom thing where it gives you zoom is the only one that has a kind of a debrief screen um, with the, when you finish a zoom chat it, it, so it has a um, well how was that zoom type thing <laughs> that you're going, I don't need you here but, I, but I'm just in my own house and I, I'm going to walk out my, into my kitchen from this room and just normal life will be going on you're going oh wait no I was just in I was just in East LA yep. um, doing, a, doing a talk just uh, doing a chat and yeah which yeah, uh, and, which Melbourne podcast are you doing? Uh, I think a philosophy with Will Anderson. Oh, lovely! Yeah, awesome. Um, and uh, but I was and as, as I was saying to you, was the one I'm really looking forward to is I am doing a podcast for Rosenberg Football Club, which is a football club in Trondheim in Norway, um, and which is a middling sized town in the middle of Norway. Uh, but they got in touch and I said, "What the hell? I've been in Trondheim, so let's talk." To the Norwegians, because that is uh, kind of we did a. Um, I photographed the Northern Lights in uh, in Norway on a. I was doing a gig up there, and we shifted the gig to January so I could go up and see the Northern Lights, which I had never done. Um, and again, slightly like we were saying with the astrophotography thing, they're wonderful, they're glorious, it's an incredible thing. But a lot of it is the fact that you dial up the green on the camera. Um, you give a long exposure of a Northern Lights and then when you get them back, then you can do a bit of Photoshop on them as well and make them look like you were within some sort of sodium fires of hell that it was just this incredible huge oh my never god i've seen the northern lights anywhere and i'm that's they're, definitely they're, they're great but they're not the 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 thing you see in the photographs thing is we we've maxed the camera up on in this so it looks incredible and they do look and you can take a photograph of it and then play with it so it looks like like serpents are swinging across the sky uh, above you but actually they're there and they're there you can see them but they're kind of a much fainter thing then you have been sold repeatedly. Um, the only exception is I once interviewed a guy called Chris Hadfield. I'm sure you've had Chris. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I think, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, I, and Chris Chris is my, I love Chris, but he's my go-to for the, my running joke about astronauts are the most boring people in the world uh, or the worst people to speak to because every story you have, they will have a same, the same story but in space. So every attitude you have, they can top by going, oh, that's, f- actually, I also burnt a meal once. In space, <laughs> uh, go, right, let it go. So we had him as a guest on, on Stargazing once and we we're talking about the Northern Lights because we had done this amazing technical thing where we had actually got a, we were getting live footage and it's very difficult to get a presenter and the Northern Lights in the same shot because of the delicate exposure for the Northern Lights and the less delicate for the, uh, to, to see the presenter. And we'd done that. We achieved this hugely technical thing and we're very proud of this. And I made the mistake of turning to Chris going, Chris, did you ever see the Northern Lights while you're actually 
on the shuttle. He went, oh yeah, he said. And uh, he said, oh yeah, I was actually on the end of the Canadarm uh, once <laughs> as we flew through them and I radioed down and got them to turn off the lights and we flew through the Northern Lights. And you're going, screw you, Chris Hadfield. Screw yeah. you with your, your anecdote that tops all other yeah. anecdotes. God. Yeah, we slept yeah. together once. Uh, it was... <laughs> I dumped I dumped the Northern Lights we briefly dated in college uh, and the Northern Lights wanted it, but I wasn't ready to settle down me. so you wasn't know for me yeah, yeah they, they get in touch every so often it's fun but I can still they still get a bit of a thing for me but anyway look it's slightly embarrassing uh, so uh, yeah it is and the notion of him on the end of a robotic arm like like something from like uh, Wally him trailing his hand as if you know as you would off, off a yacht uh, you know of a, of a speedboat as you, as you dip your hand into the water and he's doing that with the northern lights as they, as they, as they sweep around and like, it's like oh yeah thanks Chris yeah thanks just the ions <laughs> just bouncing off your gloves yeah it's just you know as it obviously irradiates them uh, <laughs> irreparably but uh, it's um, uh, yeah no so, so ne- never never tell an anecdote to an astronaut that's the one thing I've learned in all, in all <laughs> science communication yeah. they will always they will always beat you astronauts with this I could go the other extreme of uh, one of your stories when you're talking about ast- astrophotography. Uh, the other day on the rising supermoon, I was out on my front porch and I put my cell phone up to my binoculars and got a, a very grainy picture of the moon. It has craters, though. I can see craters on it. Good. It's the most low-rent version of what you do. <laughs> Look, their, their entire... I think I had an entire um, uh, telescope that I thought was broken, but I just hadn't focused it. <laughs> I just <laughs> twisted the tiny dial because it was going, oh, this seems like everything's really big and there's a circle in the middle of it. Like, I just, anything, it is incredible. Everything that could go wrong will at some stage go wrong where you'll forget to take caps off or you'll forget to, the, and there's hours of things that you'll go back to and realize, oh no, I hadn't fully plugged in the intervalometer on my DSL the thing just that, that you know I just hadn't pressed it in just that last bit because it's like a little phono attachment and so I set the whole thing up and two and a half hours later I went out and had done nothing and I remember I sent a very angry tweet once where I'd done that and it was like the tiniest of things we've done wrong and I sent a tweet going fuck this hobby shit I need to be back doing tours this is nonsense I am so over this now I need this I need this time to be over uh, because it was just like this is this is absolutely pointless but it is it's it's uh, it's a glorious thing because the results when you get them when you actually get and you pull like a nebula out it like is it's it's quite impressive because it comes from nowhere it's like there's nothing in this there's nothing in this photograph this, this is nonsense let's stack 40 of them and then slightly shift it Oh my God! The, and then suddenly the rosette appears, or whatever, or the you know crab nebula appears. And when it comes out, it's it's quite amazing. Um, so it's a. Do you have a, your your any of your best photos up somewhere everyone can see? Or no, I've, I've not done an, uh, the, the the app is called Astro Bin, which is a place where people go. But it is um, it's too good. <laughs> Slightly, <laughs> I there's a, there's a push I want to do because I finally got to the point because you know I finally got to the point where I've committed to a really good scope and a really good camera, and I'm one, I'm I'm actually a scope and a camera on from where I started. In fact, I'm two scopes and a camera on from where I started um, a year and a bit ago. So. Perhaps now I should be able to do it and get some proper ones like whatever. But now they're just they're 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 okay. Now I'm at the level of well done. Uh, I didn't think you'd be able to do that, but that's it's a bit like the maths. I'm quite good at it, but not 
you know, not actual good. Is it? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's a bit. They occasionally play charity football matches where comedians um, play in like big football stadiums, and one of them will, will sometimes connect with the ball, and it'll 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 soar to the air and go to the net, and it's like, oh wow, well done. But all the time you're going for you. That's very good <laughs> yeah, for, for you. you. Yeah, for you. That that's quite good. Like whatever. So but, yeah. So yeah. But those are ridiculous ones as well. They do those. The, that one big one every year where it is just it's a team of famous people who are largely comedians and then mostly retired professional footballers yes and it is just like oh it's just yeah it's my mate trying to like wheezing up and down the pitch next to someone who won a world cup a few years ago <laughs> yeah and 50,000 people watch this Yes. Um, and uh, like attend it and it goes on the telly and millions of people watch it and it's for charity and it's just a really low standard of football and you're going <laughs> why are you doing this so I don't want to be that for astrophotography I, I don't want to be you know I do actually I just put I put a link to my shitty moon picture in the uh, if you look at, at the oh is that, is that a shitty moon picture okay, <laughs> very very good okay cool uh, oh yeah that's, that's a pretty shitty moon picture <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> you no you can see, see moon. Craters. And you can see craters. craters not just that you can you can see the yellow cast of it as well which is uh, which was the uh, which is what it was at the time it was that um, oh I can never remember it, it, it is my blank spot the names for the various types of larger moon the you know oh but it's a blood moon right right Right, right. This does seem hey, to be. I, I feel like there's been real moon name inflation in the last few so years. So much, so oh, much, totally. That every month is apparently. Well, this is the first time the moon will both be in the left part of the sky and also at yes. its uh, at its zenith. This is but a also, semi-super blood moon, and this is the yeah, that, and that won't happen again for forty years. Yeah, but in a month you'll have another name for <laughs> right. this for this thing happening. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's become a very very very, very common thing, and they're all spoken of. Occasionally, a genuinely significant one might come across, but the uh, but it is just a, it's a function of how low they are in the sky, uh, I think, and then how near they are. The, uh, the, because the low just it tilts the perspective against against things that they look ridiculous. But in your mind's eye, I think we all have an image of those ridiculous images of the moon, where it's like huge right, and right. just so that you know that's yeah, and, and it so very rarely does that. Like whatever, it screws the photography a lot, though. It's a pain in the arse because uh, you can't really uh, um, the it's it's the thing you don't go out for if you're taking this really really is you don't go out and do things when there's a full moon on because it just washes out everything. Oh right, else yeah, right. that was um. Uh, the weekend before last, I st- we uh, Andy was out of town, so we went up and stayed at his place. And the one thing we didn't get was any decent star sightings because it was an incredibly bright moon. So it was just like having a, it was basically like having a light bulb shining in your face. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, 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 it is. And which is you know well done the moon, but the moon is very much. Some people love listen, go really mad for it, like whatever. I found it was a thing you shoot first because it's there, it's easiest, and it's great, and it feels very gratifying. And I have like a screensaver of it and all that, but like. There's only so many ways you want to do that. Um, and then somebody, there's a thing called the Terminator. The Terminator is the black line of shadow, basically, um, that passes, as it were, night by night, going for, as it waxes and wanes. And the Terminator is the edge of it. And basically, it's where the largest shadows occur, um, uh, as you can see. Wait, so if you take a photograph sh- of it. Hmm? Shadow, shadows cast by them. I, I don't, but, I so, so shadows cast by the by, by the sun, which show the the craters in the best relief. Um, oh, uh, okay. And so yeah. yeah, so where it goes from bright to dark, um, and that curve there is called the terminator as it goes from bright to dark. And on the edge of that curve, you're getting basically the sunlight coming really low across the craters, so the shadows are the, are the longest. So you get the most relief. 
um, and the yeah. greatest sense of, of the creator's depth and all that. And then somebody spent, I think, a year, but God knows how long, just shooting various stages of the Terminator and then a- accumulating those pictures so you got an incredibly rugged single image. Oh. Um, and I remember looking at that and going, well, A, that's brilliant, and also... That's that done now. There's nothing you can do is going to top that. The moon is now being... Shut it down, people. Shut it down. The moon's been covered. We got it. The the moon's been done. Yeah. Um, I do know a photographer for the BBC who worked with uh, on our things um, who... Uh, said that he'd been contacted whatever he may have he may have captured a meteor crashing onto the moon um, because he was doing a shot of it at one stage and then saw later there was a news report about it and then he focused it and there's you can see a small you can see before and after where there was there was a small tiny new dent where there wasn't and he may have caught the moment where something crashed onto the moon uh, that's that's great that's quite sweet. Uh, I do think there is. I think there are people who'd want to see the, your various space photos, even if you're conscious of the it, fact it, that they're not at professional level. It's still interesting. Look, look, and, and on Twitter, I have I have posted them. The uh, and I, I've no idea how you'd post on this because I'm very happy. To, but is is there a mechanism by which this I can just throw something to you now? Is there? Oh yeah, or, uh, if you if you have a direct link to a tweet, you can just in the. In, on the website there where the links are coming up you can just put it in the message box and it'll and actually oh that's amazing <laughs> that's so great Let's yeah see if I can view it full screen and did you say this is actually from England but just London? a super long exposure for- uh, that yeah that is that's um, and that's not enormously long that one so it's kind of you kind of get into this game of going well I'm going to give them uh, next time I'm going to give it four hours uh, that's probably 30, 30 minutes to an hour um, of Andromeda that's incredible I mean I would have thought the light pollution would make that impossible even with the long exposure honestly it, because when you do the long exposures the light pollution kind Cancels. of just gets filtered out huh. by, along with everything else so the the, uh, the fuzziness because you could, there are gradient controls that you can do that basically the thing appears and it's all a lot greyer and then there's a button you press in the software that takes that grayness away. You do little, little sample boxes and it takes them away and it darkens it up. And then you go into Photoshop and you set a black point and you right. draw up. It's it, 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 sort of the way to explain how it works. You'll see it more obviously in something when the, uh, the rosette, I've sent over a shot of the rosette as well. Um, I'm, I'm which just is, opening that now. And yeah. you should also have that in a second. Oh, hang on. It's, and I think I sent you M81 as well. Um, yes. The uh, and so what it is is basically if you imagine it, the, the, you get the picture and it's, it's black. I mean, it's, it's weird. The, 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 the one thing is what you actually get because you go, there's nothing there. And what there is, there is stuff there. If you imagine a histogram that's, um, you know, that just there's a tiny tin spike at one end, and basically, and then and then you so you dump all the stuff that has no information in it and it stretches the histogram out and suddenly by basically ignoring everything above a certain bit and below a certain bit and you just take the you just look at the picture with just those wavelengths suddenly the, the thing appears so oh, you that tune makes, that it makes total to, sense yeah so you just look at these very fine usually around red usually around um, hydrogen alpha the emission red thing for hydrogen alpha um, for a lot of them the, uh, and so you just look at the, the, these, this small band of light and you expand that thing out and then the picture fills with with the detail and the colour mm. Um and then there's little things which are which are tricks. I think the one I showed you of the rosette has um, little star, little t- twinkliness on the stars. That's a trick. 
Uh, obviously, they don't look like that. Uh, but it's a trick that people used to do by attaching a string from, uh, and you'd get a diffraction line, and you just type, put a string at the, on, on the aperture of your of your telescope, and then you'd get this this starlight kind of cross on the stars. And now you can just do it in Photoshop. The same thing, but it makes it means the thing twinkles. But all of these things are pretty much um, invisible to the naked eye. The, uh, you could just about make a slight fuzziness for Andromeda, um, or for, um, I, I think you, I, did you get M81 as well? Did I've got M81. That? The rosette is the one that actually, hang on, is only just coming through now. I just sent yeah. that to, onto Andy as well. Um, but yeah, that, that makes so much sense. It's, it's weirdly not that different to removing noise from an audio recording where you just, as long Absolutely, as you ha- yeah. as long as it's a constant noise, you can get rid of it quite easily. Yeah, I, do you know what? There's a, there's a process uh, called, there's, there's three processes you do. One's called bias, one's called dark, one's called flats. And um, one of them is to get rid of um, dodgy um, chips, uh, dodgy pixels. So you do quick shots of everything that they bias, and then you eliminate those by doing that. The darks, you shoot the same thing with the lens cap on. So it, so the the sensor heats up in 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 sort of strange ways and uh, over periods of time and then you have to get rid of that current as well and then there's flats which is just you shine it at a uniform light and that'll get rid of dust mites uh, dust motes and um you know smudges on the glass and things like that that would otherwise appear mm-hmm. so you have to do these three things and they're all I suppose exactly the same as that bit where the sound man would tell you all to shut up and he yeah. would just put the camera and you'd get the ambient sound and I sort of never got how that worked but it's exactly the same and then you just subtract that what it is basically mathematically it's quite interesting what you do is you divide by the average amount and then multiply by oh my god I had this down somewhere I really understood it so that basically it evened it out so on if on the if if on the flat thing you could there were bits where it was 100 bits where it was 90 you would you would do that with your stuff as well, and they would basically and they would take out all of the unevenness. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was it's a it's sorry, I I have it in a book and I should probably look it up <laughs> behind me here, but it's actually quite a neat little mathematical tool, and it gets rid of hairs in the grate basically. But it's exactly the same as as when you do, you do when you do a kind of a film shoot. Yeah. a cameraman says everybody quiet and takes it like just the hum of day to day stuff and that's also when they do it for sound that's also because if they if they need to edit in a silence somewhere you need to have yes, that exact same room tone otherwise yeah, the same kind it of silence, sounds yeah. your your brain notices it but but we, yeah we do that sometimes with our recording if it turns out someone has a fan that's making a weird noise or a weird artifact on one of the microphones you just you just find a point in the recording when no one is talking and then yeah. Yeah. the sound software can just take the profile of that noise and subtract it from the rest of the track as long as the, it's constant the bit that's very gratifying with this for example the Andromeda which I think presume you've all received at this stage yes uh, those dust lanes are in the same place every time you're doing something when those things appear because it's not like you're just catching a um an interesting texture on, in that particular photograph. They are exact things. That, they're big things of dust that exist in space. They're an actual part of the landscape of oh. that thing. So they will always appear in those same places, like whatever. Um, you'll see in the rosette, you'll see lines that appear like they're just part of a photo, like an artistic photo, but they're not. They're actual physical objects and they always appear there and you can orient it via where they are, those steps and those stars. What, what those is things. the rosette? The rosette is a nebula. It's a um a mission nebula in um it's so it's a big it's a big cloud of, of dust. 
um, uh, and got it say, within the Mission Nebula is I have to look that up exactly as opposed to I think it's in the Mission Nebula the um, so it's a, big, it's a it's a cloud it's a star forming region do you know so it's a big uh, right. uh, cloud there are ones which are things like the um, Dumbbell Nebula which which are quite circular and they're because the star exploded and expelled things out and you're seeing the last energy of the star they're planetary nebula and they're always very very circular because they're literally the dust being blown out from the middle and that's the last energy and sometimes there'll be a small star a small star in the middle of it but the uh, but they're just that's that that is if you imagine literally what you imagine is just the, the the energetic particles being forced out and you can see the kind of them in a kind of a circular symmetric kind of way um where they've all been forced out these are more like a clouds of gas um, right. uh, and star forming regions where, you know, the du- sorry, clouds of dust and gas where they're coalescing and creating new stars all the time. The, the obvious one for that is, um, Orion. Uh, and Orion is very much the pal because there's times of years you can't see it. And I couldn't see it for ages and was kind of doing this. And then Orion comes up around about October, November. And then you go, holy hell, because this is, you can actually, Orion, you can actually see. Um, it's sufficiently close and sufficiently huge. You can actually see this fuzzy cloud. And then you take pictures of that and you get all the details. It's incredible. My problem, my only problem with Orion is, um, I very much see a motorbike helmet in one of the things and I cannot get that out of my head now. I see a motorbike helmet and a guy with a, a guy in a cowl with a motorbike helmet and I cannot shift the motorbike helmet from my head every time I see Orion and it's sort of ruined it for me. The, uh, and now for everyone else who listens to this show. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a, there, it was a, a Woody Allen story, story about him being in love with a woman but then once the light caught her and he, look, she look, he looked like her, his Aunt Doris and then he could never love her again because he couldn't get the image of Aunt Doris out of his head. It's like the, uh, once you yeah. see Angelina Jolie as John Voight with long hair, she's sort of maybe not one of the most beautiful <laughs> women in the world anymore. I, I haven't done that and, I'm, and now I have to. There's, uh, a, <laughs> there's straight up there, when we were looking at uh, wedding venues in Colorado, there's a there's this mansion on a hill that is really nice and a beautiful setting and then just at one point when we went to look at it and it it just, I just realized it looked like a harvester. <laughs> like, uh, which, yeah. which for the yeah. for the Americans is uh, uh, and Australians listening and other around the world is just a a chain of roadside restaurants that are sort of done with a mock Tudor effect, and then I, I just couldn't get that out of my head. And just, Sorry about that. That is that that would ruin because it would be all through the service, all through the dancing. Yeah, you just go like, head. oh, they've got they've got the two for one carvery on a Sunday. <laughs> it's just. And then presumably you'd invite somebody over from Britain and their their first reaction would be a harvester. That's a strong choice. That's an interesting. <laughs> well, when we did, when I showed it to my sisters when we were back in London and uh, yeah, all of them did go, yeah, it does look a bit like a harvester. <laughs> well then, has this, by the way, happened this service? It, or it has been when? postponed because it was meant to happen in the middle of COVID. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, good luck, good luck when that Thank ever happens. You. Yeah. The um oh, okay cool. Well look, have you seen them? Have you got them? Have you Yeah, yeah, they're great. Uh, where, I'm looking at all three yeah, of them. I love that you were like ashamed not ashamed but like you know hesitant to put these out into the world. Look, I so can, I can show you ones cuz it's like as I said it's like there's there are there's like a 20 really common targets um that people do and you do them over and over and over again like it's, it's really strange and you just kind of go okay uh, but it is um it, it, the, the reaction should be well done you as i said like she will quit for you like because i know you do, you only took that up a while ago but there are people who really you know have have been able to do this a lot more. and my, my worry is that when i go back on tour suddenly all the nights will go and i won't be able to um do this anymore the uh it was very much because i was i was stuck at home and 
twiddling my thumbs in the evenings. But the uh, but it is it's compelling because it gets slightly better each time, and then because the sky changes over your head. New, I mean, and like Andromeda, for example, is gone now. I won't be able to catch it because of where I am, the trees and the buildings and where and the, the way the house is. I won't see Andromeda again for a while until by the time it comes around again, I'll have probably bought another camera by then, or I'll right. probably bought another setup and I'll give it another crack for a while. Orion is gone. Is your telescope? It's not, it's not at all. It's, okay. it's like, I mean, by the, by the time you get to the one that's, um, that can track, because basically we, because we're looking at an angle, there are ones that you can just, they're called alt-ads, which are very straightforward, up, up, down, left, right. Uh, and they're great, except if you point at any point, uh, if you take a shot of something, the, it sort of rotates around even even the best tracking you can do of it can't accommodate the fact that the whole thing is twisting and travelling at the same time um, so it kind of moves up in a curve around so this thing can keep it centred but the stars around it will will pivot and you just get these trails all the time so you need to then go to a sort of an equatorial mount which is one that has to be aligned to the pole which is a pain in itself and then tilted at exactly the right angle so that it tilts as the sky tilts and then you're able to do five minutes ten minutes of the same object and thus really open the exposure out and really get very faint detail but they get it's like they become engineered in a way that scuba diving is much more difficult than snorkeling it's because you need something that's going to bring you down and then you need something that's bringing you up and you need something that's leveling you off and you need all of these Mm -hmm. degrees of stuff to just to get to the point where you're doing this very simple thing of just tracking the sky and so it just becomes heavy and it becomes to set up every time you got to find the pole and you got to you get the whole thing pivot and you got to find the star align the stars and there are ways of doing it which are quicker and there's technology you can purchase as I have done to do it but you're also very aware in your head of that image of Tin Cup have you ever seen Tin Cup with Kevin Costner? Yes yeah do you know there's a bit where he he loses it he loses how to do it and then they catch him in his trailer with all of the gimmicks the hat with the ball hanging down uh, <laughs> and you you're just as scared that you'll be that guy who bought everything that you know well, well this will make your photographs better and you buy everything and they all get delivered so uh the, you, the worry is you'll just over you'll put too much technology into what should be a relatively straightforward thing um but it's a uh it's a, look it's it's a glorious thing and then when the results come through and you stack them up and they appear because it is a thing of the computer hums for a while for 40 minutes and then goes genuinely literally there's a, there's a thing called the Astro Pixel Processor it goes ding to indicate the thing is done <laughs> or bong it's more bong than ding it goes bong and you, and you look at it and then it appears like that Andromeda picture and you go holy holy Christ that's great <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's a lovely thing when it works it hasn't for example worked in a month because it's been cloud for the last month and any time I've gone out there's been something technically wrong and I haven't done it for ages so it's it's infuriating but when it works it's glorious yeah they're really amazing and listeners we'll we'll have these all linked in the show notes okay cool great look people can go oh yeah <laughs> well done <laughs> very good <laughs> yeah. and then you go, what you do is you go to Astro Bin and that is where people actually publish their stuff like with all of the details attached like whatever and you go oh right okay that's <laughs> great well, some of the stuff you can do from, from a garden is, is ridiculous I mean that is probably the thing that's most astonishing people are amazed that you can do that I can't from believe your garden, your in, in an urban yeah. area that's just that's insane in an urban area I never yeah. would have guessed that in, in Bortlate you know uh, yeah you're about and, to give uh, Andy a very expensive hobby well I was going to buy just 
a consumer grade like three hundred dollar telescope last summer, but uh, everyone is suddenly at home and all of those are back ordered. Anything above the children's level is back ordered for months. Because Absolutely, of there, was, there was a huge rush, and I was very lucky. I got in at the point. A huge rush on them uh, for for a number of reasons. That and the, the international transport of stuff from China affected a lot of things. The uh, there was a picture, you know, because I now follow a lot of astrophotography accounts. <laughs> there was a joke that passed around of that boat. Um, the what you call it in the Suez Canal? Oh right. Um, yeah, with an arrow going, your new telescope <laughs> pointing to just one of the crates. They uh, because a lot of stuff, and and Britain had a whole Brexit thing as well going on. But they very quickly ran out of stuff. All the the telescope um people because everyone had everyone had the same idea. Everyone's home. Yeah. yeah. Telescopes and barbecues, lads. That's where the money was. And hammocks, uh, hammocks went up three hundred percent. Wow. Yeah. Do you know, disaster capital is so much easier retrospectively. (laughs) It is one of the things which is just, it's so obvious. I should have been making masks. It's so, but like, you know... (laughs) You know, it's a mob. Just be one of those assholes who just bought all of the bleach and then started selling it from the back of their truck at a 400% markup. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but honestly, it's just, of course people wanted this. Why did I buy all these disposable, you know, why did I, why did I go into tofu? It was the wrong time to go to tofu, whatever. They, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is the time to definitely buy toilet paper. Yeah, they, uh, so that was that. Gentlemen, Dara, I, uh, yes, that, we should wrap this up. Yeah. Um, where, where, should I, where can our listeners find everything you're doing, Dara? Oh my lord! Just I'm on Twitter. Go say say hello. I'm on Twitter. This is it'll be, it'll be yourselves. It'll be the fans of the Norwegian football team. It'll be <laughs> fans of Icelandic photography as I do this world tour of nonsense. And then ideally, I mean, because you know, I was I, I'm, I'm, I'll be back on tour. I'll be back on tour at some stage. Uh, and that Bortle thing, I think, is going to turn into a routine. Uh, so <laughs> the. I mean, you there's a whole other bit. You your tours around bottle ones and twos. Honestly, I would, there's, a, there's a map you can get uh, and it'll show. But sadly, that's not where the crowds are. Right. It is very much, <laughs> I imagine. the brutal irony is, but I will. I, I can imagine there being a 10 minute bit where I explain the various stages of Bortle via my life. <laughs> Bortle 9? Bortle 9 would be Manhattan, but that's okay because you're in Manhattan. Yeah. And that's great because you're in the city. Like, <laughs> Bortle 6, the schools are better and that was the right time to go somewhere. Where, <laughs> That, I have a version there's a version of that I like the I, you can see the face of your grandparents right that one and, and <laughs> yeah. your dead pet but the other version is Bordel Zero is like a, a Chilean farmer approaches me in, in a bar and goes Senor what is it you want and I went I want a shed I want a shed with a roof that retracts <laughs> men will come do not tell the men what is in the shed and <laughs> Because that is the ultimate version of you rent a shed in Chile in the Atacama Desert and you lo- and you and you set up thousands of pounds of stuff there like whatever and, and said, Senor, why are you doing this? Do not ask. Do not ask why I'm doing this. <laughs> no, I'm I need to shed. see the sky. <laughs> I will be in the shed. I will never be the shed. I will never be in the shed. I will be in London, but the shed will have pictures of sky. But Senor, why would you do that? So the, the, the Bortle routine, I think, is going to get larger and larger and more insane. You know? <laughs> There's even a Diane. Diane, what should we be? Diane is a woman I met in New York and then we moved to the suburbs. But honestly, the pressure of living in Bortle 3 and there's nothing around us. And then eventually I met me, Senor, what should we call the, what should we call the telescope? Call it Diane. And then I turn and I walk away. <laughs> I still have a cigarette. It's all waiting to happen. If I could just tour again. That'd be great. <laughs> If we could help you get to Bortle 1, we've done our job. If I could just see Bortle 1 before I die. If I could see <laughs> Bortle 1 before I die. That is, oh, it is literally, my God, it's full of stars. That is literally yeah. what I will say. 
um dara thank you so much for joining yes. us and uh, gentlemen an absolute delight this is literally the exact reason i wanted to do this stupid world oh, mate, this so is happy fabulous to- well well thank you thank you so much and listeners thank you as well and yep. we will we'll see you all next time talk to you soon